If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can look up, look up the book of Colossians. We're going to look at that book together today. I'm going to read you the first 15 verses of chapter 3. And before I do that, I just want to remind you of our whole series together. So remember, we're looking at the Bible together and the message of all the scriptures together. And we've associated the numbers 3, 4, and 5 with looking at the scriptures. And the numbers 3, 4, and 5 are the framework through which we can understand the whole message of the Bible. So three, the number three stands for the three loves. You find these starting in Genesis 1 and 2, and then they work themselves out through the rest of the Bible. So the three loves are love God, love people, and love place, right in Genesis 1 and 2. That is foundational. It's how we were made. It's how we were built. Four stands for the four-part story. You remember these four parts? What's the first one? Creation, rebellion, Redemption, restoration. Most of us grew up in a two-part story in which we think that everything is about redemption and rebellion. So we have a tendency to look at every issue, every person through those two lenses. We look at people and say, oh yeah, they're a rebel because I am. They need redemption because I do. And what God is teaching us in his word is that we actually have to look at every human being, every issue, hot topic or not, through the lens of the four-part story, because that's how everything fits. Five stands for five threads that you find throughout the scriptures. So again, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand three loves, four parts, and these five threads. Thread number one, God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. The church didn't start in the New Testament. God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Two, evil is real, but it never ever gets the last word. Hallelujah, right? Three, grace. God initiates, pursues, and redeems. Always. The Bible is about grace from beginning to end. Grace did not show up in the New Testament, and wrath was how God was described in the Old. The Bible has always been a book about the grace of God. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to save a people. He died to put to death, death itself. He died to defeat sin, period. Five, everything is moving toward Jesus, everything. Everything in the Bible is moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life is moving toward Jesus. Everything in history is moving toward Jesus. So if you want to understand the Bible, you got to think about that. Even from Genesis 1, everything is moving toward Jesus. So whatever we're going through right now, whatever we're experiencing right now, moving toward Jesus. So that's the framework. Now, last week, John Paul preached to us from Ephesians 1. And in that letter, you might remember, uh, John Paul told us that the Apostle Paul planted that church and pastored that church. This morning, we're looking at the book of Colossians. And there's a little difference here. Here is the difference. The Apostle Paul didn't plant the church, and he didn't pastor there. He actually writes this letter to the church at Colossae from prison. Think about that. So when I read these words in a few moments... These are not the kind of words that I would write from prison. 
If I was in prison because I was talking about Jesus and the resurrection and the truth of it, and somebody put me in prison, I wouldn't be saying what he did. But Paul was much different than me, which you already knew that. Paul writes these words from prison. That is profound, profound to think about. The other thing I want to mention to you before I read is this, just to give you a little hat tip of where we're going this morning as we read the first 15 verses. You ready? Because you need to hear this or else you might get confused. I'm going to read the first 15 verses, and then we're going to work through these verses backwards. Got me? Because I think that'll be the easiest way to understand it. So, without further ado, Colossians 3, 1 through 15. Would you all mind standing for the word? Is that okay? Get those things, get everything moving. You can move around. You can jump up and down if you want. Just remember, these were words from prison. God speaking to us. Listen to this. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word to look at together. We ask that you would take your word and bring it into our hearts, and from there, cause your word to have a dramatic, consistent effect, so that our minds, our emotions, our actions would continue to indicate that we belong to you and that you define who we are and you define what life is so that we live and desire you more and more. Holy Spirit, help us to see our Jesus today. Help us not only to understand ourselves, but connect deeply who we are with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. 
We're going to jump right in this morning. So for those of you that take notes, for those of you that want to know what's the idea, for those of you that maybe check in and out, have a tendency to do that as we are gathered together and listen, here's the big idea. Here's the idea that I want you to get. Um, This is found in verse 15. We're going to talk about the peace of God this morning. We're going to talk about the peace of God. Um, You can notice the text says the peace of Christ. It's the same thing. Christ is God. So we're going to think about this together, the peace of God. And we're going to do that in three ways this morning. The first one is this. We're going to think about the peace of God and what it isn't and what it is. Secondly, we're going to talk about how to live it. And third, how to get it. So the peace of God is our big idea. Let's jump in. What it isn't and what it is. The peace of God is not pursuing a happy life. That is not the peace of God. The peace of God is not striving to be happy. The peace of God is not wanting others to be happy. The peace of God is actually, at times, the peace of God may not even feel like you are at peace with God. In other words, the peace of God is not something that is subjective and individually subjective and and that is controlled by your emotion or my emotion. That is not what the peace of God is. The peace of God is this. The peace of God is when something that is so broken is fixed. And that, what has been fixed, that is so powerful that it affects everything else. The peace of God is when something that's so broken has been fixed that that affects everything. When I was in college, my best friend and I had a great relationship. And through the course of our relationship, um, I was learning a lot about the Bible, I was learning a lot about theology, and I was super excited about that and very passionate about that, and I ended up doing tremendous damage to our relationship. You ever been in those kind of relationships? In which you realize, oh, I used to hang out with this person all the time, we used to do stuff. I guess we're not hanging out so much anymore just because he's busy, and then you want to hang out more and want to do this, want to do that, and it's not happening. You realize, well, that's the way it used to be, and it's not happening. You think, well, I guess, you know, maybe our schedules just aren't lining up. And then, you remember that moment when it dawns on you? Oh, maybe my relationship with my best friend is messed up because of me and because of something that I have done. That ever happened to you in your life? You see, I had learned and was learning a lot of truth. And what I was doing is I was using that truth to damage our relationship. I was hurting our relationship because of the way that I was practicing, uh, talking about truth. Some of you may know this who've been in the Christian life for a while as the cage phase of Christianity where you get some new truth and it's so exciting to you that you really need to be put in a cage for a little while until you calm back down. I should have been put in the cage for several years and they should have locked it and thrown away the key. And I should have never gotten out for three or five years. 
But you know what it's like when you realize, oh, maybe I have done something here. So I went to my friend and I said to him, look, I have realized that I have damaged this relationship. And here's how. I took something that was good, truth, and I hurt people with the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I knew what it meant to like stay away from, you know, bad things and, and not use bad things, but I never thought about how I could use a good thing and hurt someone with a good thing. So I went to him and I had to repent and I had to say, I'm sorry that I said these things to you. I'm sorry that I did this to you. I am, I am sorry not only for my actions and not only for my words, but I'm sorry that I approached our relationship in a very hurtful way. And we reconciled and he forgave me. And that has affected all kinds of my relationships from that point forward. I have realized deep down that I am capable of taking something that is good and hurting people with it. I had to come to grips with, I need to be a whole lot more sensitive in the way that I deal with people and talk with people, especially about something that I'm really passionate about and something that I really like, like truth. But when I reconcile with him, our relationship in a sense was fixed. And because of what I learned in that and what I learned about what I could do in a relationship and what I could do in damaging a relationship and what I could do in using a good thing to damage a relationship, it affected how I interact with others. And when God tells us here in verse 15 that this whole thing, these 15 verses are talking about the peace of God, Paul is telling us that the peace of God has reference to God. That it's not a subjective thing, but there's an objective truth that has happened. There is literal peace with God. You see, there was a time when our relationship with God was broken. God was angry with us and upset with us because of our rebellion and our sin. And because of what Jesus has done, our relationship to God is fixed. And therefore, our relationship with God is unalterable and unchangeable because of Jesus and what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done, we are reconciled to God and therefore, objectively speaking, whether we feel like it or not, God is at peace with us. Not because we've done anything, but because Christ has done it all. And if you look closely at the text, look at what it tells you. Listen to this. Let the peace of Christ what? Rule your hearts. See that? Let the peace of Christ rule your heart. When God tells us that, he's telling us something very profound. He's telling us about something that has been so broken, our relationship with him, that's been fixed, not by us, by Jesus, and that affects everything else. Therefore, he's saying, let the peace of God rule your heart. 
It's the only time that word rule is used in the New Testament. It's actually communicating the sense of an umpire, you know? Let the peace of God be an umpire for everything in your heart. Let the peace of God referee everything in your life. I thought about a boxing referee. You know, a boxing referee that is in the ring with two guys that are trying to, you know, beat each other's brains in. You know what a referee does for a boxing match? He starts the match. He pauses the match. He can stop the match at his discretion. And he ultimately can end the boxing match, right? And... He is so close to the boxers that he is watching every move that they make, isn't he? He's watching every detail of each movement that is going on between the two fighters. The Apostle Paul is saying, let the peace of God affect every movement, every moment of your entire life. Let the reality of what Jesus did in fixing your relationship with God affect every other thing in your life. It should rule your heart. Easier said than done, right? Peace of God, what it isn't and what it is. Let's look at this. Well, how, if that's the command, if I'm supposed to let the peace of God rule my heart in every situation, every moment, all the time, how, how do I live that out? How do I do that? Well, if you look at verses 5 through 14, it tells you. Here's how you live this out. Here's what it looks like. Two ideas that you'll find if you go and read these passages, read these verses again and again. Put off and put on. Do you notice that? Look at verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 9. Put to death. Put off this. Put off all of these. Put away all these things. There's an aspect of putting off. Because our relationship with God is fixed, we therefore live by the peace of God and we put off certain things. We put them away. We put them to death. Look at verse five. It gives you a list of things to put off. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, passions, even goes down to covetousness, which he adds is idolatry. Do you see that in verse five? What Paul is doing is he is going from very general all the way down to very specific. Let me explain. When he talks about sexual morality, he's talking about this. Any sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. So anything that's not in that relationship is an expression of brokenness, is an expression of rebellion, is an expression of sin. Remember, God loves sex. He created it. He's not prudish like we often are. He actually gave sex as a gift to husband and wife in marriage to be enjoyed 
to be explored, to be delighted in. In the scriptures, intimacy always follows commitment. Therefore, whenever we try to satisfy our sexual desires outside of the commitment of marriage, all that we're doing is bringing destruction and chaos into our lives because we're doing something that is the most intimate thing you can possibly do with someone without any commitment, and that never goes well. And we live in a culture that is a lot like the first century in which sex is used as a bargaining tool, as, as um, entertainment, as um, self-serving. Which, by the way, Paul starts with this general idea of sexual morality, meaning anything outside of marriage between a husband and wife. But then it goes in, even into your thoughts. Impurity. It even goes into your passions. It even goes into evil desires. It even goes all the way down to getting more specific covetousness, which is idolatry. What Paul is saying there with covetousness is actually the idea of pursuing self, selfish things. Because you see, for example, sexual activity outside of marriage between husband and wife ultimately means you're just wanting to satisfy your self. And we have to put that off. And that's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. Because just like the first century, we are very sexually broken. There's sexual sin everywhere, isn't there? It's everywhere. All of us are sexually broken people. All of us. Every single one of us. So when you hear the Apostle Paul talking about sexuality and saying, put sexual immorality off. When you hear him talking about that, make sure you understand what he's saying. He is assuming that people in the church struggle with this. So if you struggle with sexual activity, don't hide The church of Jesus Christ is a place where you can process that and fight against it and understand it through the lens of what Jesus has done. Remember, peace of God is where we start. So don't hide. If you're struggling struggling sexually, talk to someone. Talk to someone. Because there is grace. There's Jesus. And the way that Paul gets at this and the way that Paul summarizes everything in this list in verse 5 is through this one idea of evil desires. Again, idolatry is just a more specific word to explain this. He goes from general way down to narrowly specific. But here is what he means when he says evil desires. You know, oftentimes you can read that and think to yourself, oh, Paul is just talking about us desiring something that is evil, but that's actually not it at all. What Paul is communicating with evil desires is this. He actually uses the word epi-desires, you know, like epicenter of something. So it's actually a desire that is an over-desire, an excessive desire A mega desire that actually wrecks everything else. Does that make sense? 
So he's actually going after our heart and he's saying, look, if you struggle with sexual immorality, it's because in your heart you have an over-desire for sexual activity in the way that you want it. There's an over-desire. It means that it's not so much that we desire something that is bad, because sex is not bad. It means that we want a good thing in a wrong way that ends up meaning we don't use it in the right way and therefore we turn it into something that's bad. You see? Because our hearts are prone not only to do what is wrong, but our hearts are also prone to take something that is good and use it improperly. That's what he's talking about. If you really want to put something off in your life, especially in the sexual realm, you have to go to the heart. You have to think about your desires And you have to process through your desires and the desires of your heart. That's why verse 5 is connected to verse 8. Listen, look look at the list that he gives us in verse 8. Again, five more things. I don't remember them all, but it's something about what, like rage or uh, uh, malice, uh, anger. Um, See that list? Why don't I just read it? This is what he says in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, right? Lying. Because when our desires are messed up, not only wanting bad things, but taking good things and over-desiring them, we have a tendency then to be angry and malicious and slanderous. And we tend to lie about it because what we have going on in our hearts doesn't just affect us, it affects other people. So Paul is saying you have to understand that because of these desires, it doesn't just mess up your life, it messes up other people's too. And we have to put off those things. So let's try real hard to bring this idea of putting off into our lives. And it's not going to be easy. I want you to really think about this. Because technique stuff doesn't work. You know? I remember my parents talking about this when I was growing up. You can actually watch a YouTube clip of this. I think it was called the Bob Newhart Show. Maybe. Some of you are older perhaps have watched this or remember this show. There's a scene in which Bob is in his office and a a lady comes in presumably to get some counseling and she tells him about what's going on in her life and he listens to her and he says, I can fix this for you. Stop it. Just stop it. Just stop it. And here's the thing, that doesn't work, does it? When you have deep down desires that are directed in a way that they shouldn't be, behavior modification doesn't work. Just saying stop it doesn't get to the root of the problem. So maybe it might work for a little while in one area, but then it just spills over into another, right? I mean, how many of us have struggled with sexual immorality and we've put up all kinds of blockers and filters and all that kind of stuff, but you know how to get around those, don't you? 
We all do. We have to get at the desire. It's the only way. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. So how in the world can we take putting off that idea and bring it into our lives? Because it's a whole lot easier to want to go to a list, a method, a technique. It's really easy to go to some kind of way that someone says, here's how to modify your behavior and this will fix it. And it doesn't work. So here's what we got to do. We really got to think about our desires. And I could list more of these, but I'll give you three. I want you to look at your life, slow down, do this maybe this afternoon or this week, slow down, get some time with you and God, maybe a very close friend, your spouse, whoever it is, and think about this. There are three primary desires that we are looking for in every situation. Ready? Desire number one, approval. Desire number two, being right. Desire number three, control. So if you can, slow down. Think about the decisions you make at work. Think about the decisions you make with your children. Think about the decisions that you make with your time. Think about the things that you say when you are talking with someone. And think about it through the lens of, am I looking for control here? Am I looking to be right here? Am I looking for really, am I really after approval here? Because if you can slow down and think about what are you really desiring in those moments as you make decisions and interact with people, you actually will be able to get at the desires that are governing your heart. So you might find out as a parent that what you're really after when you talk with your kids is control. You might find out what you're really after when you interact with people is not really relationship, it's approval. You might find out that at work, what you're really after is that you really want to be right. And all those three can actually work at the same time in every situation, right? So here's the deal. Think about it deeply so that you can recognize, is approval a bad thing? No. Is controlling certain things? No. Is wanting to be right always wrong? No. But if you're in a situation in which you're looking for approval and someone, and that approval is in question, not sure if it's going to happen or not, you might be a little bit nervous. You might be hopeful. Those are fine, right? Good things. But if you're after approval and you don't get it and it's crushing to you, then that desire for approval is not a normal desire. That is an epi, mega, excessive desire. If you're a control person and you really want to control things and someone tells you no, and you get upset about that, that might be okay. But if the result of you not getting your way is that you become embittered toward that other person 
and you become someone who inside begins to rage against that person or others, and you begin to think ill of other people, and you begin to lie about things, then guess what? That desire is an over-desire that's wrong. Putting off is really hard, hear me. It's really hard to take what Jesus has done and bring that into your everyday life. It's so much easier for us to leave Jesus over here in his death and resurrection and then think about how I'm supposed to live over here. Jesus over here, I work really hard over here. It's really, really easy to do that in the sense of it's natural to think that way. It's really hard to take what Jesus has done and bring that into our lives. And here's what else it looks like to live by the peace of God. It's not just that we put off. Look at verse 10 and verse 12. We put on. We put on. Here's what God says. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgive one another, and above all, put on love. So for time's sake, where are the areas in your life where you need to put on humility? Where are the areas of your life where you need to put on meekness, need to put on patience? Where are the areas of your life in which you need to put on bearing with someone? You know, the person you don't want to bear with? That person. That's it. Where do you need to forgive? And even if it's not something specific, where do you need to have a forgiving posture toward people? To live by the peace of God looks like us putting off and putting on. So here's the third thing. How do we get it? How in the world do we get the peace of God? The first four verses answer this for us. And you can tell that Paul is not interested in giving us a technique or giving us a method. You can tell that the Apostle Paul is not interested in giving us a spiritual New Year's resolution, you know, those, those, those little phrases we live by every year that, we, that sometimes, unfortunately, in the church, the church says, pick your word, pick your phrase, and live that by the year, live that for the whole year, right? Does that ever work? Even times when it does, it seems to me that people so focus on that word that they completely forget Jesus and repenting and believing. It's just become their idea of how they think they should live, and the Apostle Paul doesn't want anything to do with that. I don't think God does either. I think he wants us to stay away from those kind of methods and away from those kind of techniques. And what he wants to do is for us to bring Jesus into our everyday lives. I mean, look at the first four verses. The Apostle Paul does not give us a method. As a matter of fact, he's giving us an anti-method. If you go back and look at the last few verses of chapter two, this is what you'll find. You see, the people of Colossus struggle with the same things we do, being technique and method-oriented. Paul says this to the church. 
Stay away from those who tell you to put on, to, uh, excuse me, to don't taste this and don't do that and do this. In other words, there were people walking around in the church who were like, hey, we can fix your life and we can fix the things in your life that you're struggling with. Just don't do this. Just don't taste that. Just don't handle this. Just handle that. And the Apostle Paul says at the end of chapter two, those things do nothing for the struggle of the flesh. Then he begins this chapter. And he begins this chapter by starting with ultimate questions. I know this is thought-provoking. I know that this is deep. Please hang in there. The ultimate questions of life are these. Who am I? What happened? Because as I look around, everything is messed up. How in the world is this thing fixed? And where am I going? Four basic questions of life. And if our mentality of life is, I am here by accident, everything is random, I'm just trying to live my best life, and then I die and nothing. If that's the answer to those questions, the way that you will approach everything is fundamentally different from the way the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to think about life. Because when you read the first four verses, what Paul is saying is, you were made in the image of God And he was saying, you are so broken that someone had to die for you and be raised from the dead for you. And that one day when he comes back, you will appear with him in glory. He's taking us to the four-part story and he's saying you have to think about your entire life through the four-part story, even the desires of your heart. Therefore, how in the world do I get the peace of God? I have to connect my life to Jesus. And here's how. That whole idea of putting off that we looked at together, Paul is connecting that directly to the death of Jesus. He summarizes it in verse three. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You see that? That's the summary. You want the peace of God? You gotta, you gotta be hid in Christ. You got to be hid in him. What that means is you were crucified with Christ. When he died, you died. That means that all of those desires that we have, that are over desires, misprioritized desires and loves, are forgiven in Jesus. And it means that in Jesus, we can understand what we really should desire. And when we have something like approval or control or being right that is ultimate to us, that we can take those to the cross. And it means that every time we put something off in our lives, like we want to deal with sexual immorality, we want to deal with impurity, we want to deal with passions, we want to deal with our desires, we want to deal with selfishness, we have to go to the cross because it's there that Jesus demonstrated the ultimate unselfishness in which he died for you and me. Therefore, we can give up a life of serving self, and we can give up thinking about sexuality through the lens of self. And we can see that we died with Christ, and we can put those things off. 
and putting on? You see, that's connected with Jesus' resurrection. Look what he says in the first phrase. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. He's not talking about the fact of the resurrection. He's talking about the reality that the power of the resurrection is in you. If you have been raised with Christ, resurrection power is at work in you. So that by Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, you can put on meekness and humility and patience and bearing with one another, forgiving one another, so you can put on love. How in the world do we get peace? It's through Jesus. You see, Jesus is the center of everything that Paul is talking about. He's the center of the gospel. It's because of him that we have hope. It's because of him we have forgiveness. And what Jesus has done is explosive. You might think when you read back through these verses, well, I don't understand how in the world verse 11 fits in here at all. Because he's talking about putting stuff on and putting stuff off and on and on. And then we have this verse 11 where the Apostle Paul says, but look, Think about you collectively. Among us, among the people of God, among the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised nor Scythian or, or barbarian. There's neither slave nor free. Do you see that? He's saying that what Jesus has done through his resurrection is so powerful and so explosive that it blows every category out of the water. And whether you are part of the Jewish people that have had the word of God for centuries and millennia, or whether you're a brand new non-Jew Christian, a follower of Jesus, there is no difference. Whether you're familiar with traditions of God's people, circumcision, or not, uncircumcised, whether the world considers you a savage, like a Scythian, a barbarian, whether you are at either side of the economic continuum, rich or poor, Christ is all and in all. Jesus is everything. And it's so powerful that the Apostle Paul doesn't just want us to think about our own lives and how we're to live by the peace of God, but he wants us to look out and look up and realize, oh, God is gathering a people from everywhere and I'm a part of that. Jesus is everything. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week, his smile is upon you and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever, even now, his presence is with you. And one day, he will bring peace, shalom, flourishing. He'll do it because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in his peace.